2: Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Today, we want to talk a bit about current events, and boy, are there a lot of current events. Um, Just in the last couple of weeks since we last recorded an episode, there's been a lot going on in the United States of America, and I think the best way to start this discussion is just by laying out, some, not all of that. To begin, the coronavirus pandemic continues at pace, uh, and in fact has worsened since we last talked. Um, daily death tolls have begun exceeding 1,000 again for the first time since May and the overall death toll in this country has surpassed 150,000 at least officially. There are all sorts of estimates as to what the unofficial death toll might actually be. While that's going on, there have also been ongoing protests for racial justice in cities across the country. They have not stopped, even though media coverage of them has lessened. Notably, in Portland has been some of the most high-profile high protests, which has been responded to with the, the president sending in federal troops who are unmarked. and There have been videos of protesters being taken into unmarked vans in both um, Portland and New York City. We're recording this on August 2nd, which means rent is due. And a lot of people are going to be unable to make rent this month because unemployment benefits expired last week. The uh, additional unemployment that was added under the CARES Act, something like $600 a week on top of uh, standard unemployment benefits, that has lapsed without Congress extending it. That So a lot of people who were reliant on that income, and for all of the faults of the CARES Act, we should note that that $600 was largely responsible for the fact that poverty in the United States went down in the months of April and May, even as millions of people lost income from the market and the market was unable to provide people with income. Continuing now, a lot to get to. There's also the moratorium on evictions and utility shutoffs has ended with that expiration of the CARES Act. So there's people in the middle of summer who will either be out of the home or not have power to run air conditioning. Uh, And that could affect millions of people. Uh, One estimate in the Wall Street Journal said that 23 million Americans say they have little or no confidence in their ability to pay rent on time this month. Meanwhile, the post office is strangely broken. There are reports of just weird delays and people getting their mail, and they seem to have run out of money due to a variety of factors, notably this uh, mandate that they fund pensions, what is it, 75 years ahead of time? While that's going on. The president has told any interviewer who will listen that the cognitive test he took designed to detect mental decline was actually very difficult. And the doctors were very impressed that how well he did
0: because he can subtract seven from a hundred.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, no, no. He said one, that's one of the questions that was really hard. So yes. he didn't say conclusively if he could do that. I, now. I have. One, oh,
2: even better. One last little bit of news to get to, uh, he did find the time to float the idea of delaying the election due to the pandemic. So having laid out all of that, and it is a lot, so I understand (laughs) it's hard to get to, I want to start this episode with the question, is that good?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, Uh, I I think we can conclusively say, uh, unless unless you are the most doomsaying accelerationist that it is possible to be, even then, I don't think any of this is good per se. It's just good in terms of what it might enable in the future. But I, I think we can conclusively say it's bad, right, Lou?
1: Yeah, I, I think the even the most, as you would say, uh, doomsaying accelerationists would look at all that and go, oh boy, that's a lot." Um, yeah, the that's, contradictions.
0: That's a lot. The contradictions have never been this heightened in uh, in living memory. Yeah. I think it's, it's I,
1: I, it, One thing, I think it should be noted that this all waves hands dramatically, uh, has been very good for the billionaires. Um, They've been earning uh, a lot of money in this, billions and billions.
0: Something like an average of $42 billion a week going to them. Which, given that the market, well, I mean, we've talked about it on this show before, but after the first couple weeks when, you know, rich people stopped dying of COVID and it became the working class disease that billionaires always wanted it to be, the market rebounded back pretty much immediately, has stayed up this whole time, despite the fact that fewer people are working and that billionaires are making themselves look like idiots on Twitter every other day. Um, And... They have continued to grow ever richer, as the rest of the country was only slightly buoyed by these unemployment, by these uh, expanded unemployment benefits, by uh, payroll protection for businesses when it wasn't stolen by some or you know some some bank or or whatnot.
2: Private jet companies,
0: yes, Mm -hmm. um, the Lakers, um, things like that. So, yeah, you've got all sorts of things coming together. But I think what you've generally seen is that we've said this before and we really should take a look at the previous whatever, however many years of punching out we've been doing, because we have said a bunch of times like the mask is finally off. But the mask can't be more off than this. The mask is off, and they have stomped on it and put it in an unmarked van and tortured it at an you know, extrajudicial site.
2: And you really should be wearing a mask at this point.
1: <laughs> Which is ironic,
0: right?
2: Yeah.
0: Um, just as we're all supposed to put our masks on, the state, the, the fascist state, is finally taking its mask off.
1: This I, is terrible. This, yeah, this metaphor is uh, – that's enough. Okay. <laughs> Every single day of the past years, and, and not just like the feeling years, the literal years, it just feels like how much worse can it get? And every single day, it just sinks a little deeper. But it's not that surprising. I mean, especially with the post office, they've been trying for decades to, to cr- crush the post office. And it's because that pension thing—the seventy-five years—that happened, I think, while I was in college. Or that in was high in two thousand six. Yeah, so I was in high school at that time. So it's—I am no longer in high school. Time passes. So it's—it's it's definitely something that all of the seeds of neoliberalism and the resurgence of the conservative part, conservative movement, they've been planting these seeds for the utter destruction of us all um for decades and they're finally coming to fruition yay us i mean congratulations mission accomplished um yeah it because the post office now it's not just the pension thing it's the fact that um they have a a person in charge who is actively trying to destroy them as quickly as possible by um prioritizing like amazon packages over their own packages so so post office packages By cutting hours and cutting equipment, while at the same time overloading and saying you need to do this many more with fewer resources, like it's active, it's it is a a policy decision, just like everything else that's wrong currently. It's a policy decision.
2: And we should note that the decline of the post office is especially troubling in a year where. It is expected that some states are going to try to hold their elections by mail as a result of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, In-person voting is only questionably safe, and who knows what that will be in November, so states have to start planning now for the possibility that having people in large crowds will still be unsafe come election day. And so the idea that ballots can't get delivered, that any number of things could go wrong in the mail process is deeply troubling while there are also Mm -hmm. some bad faith claims of the problems posed by uh, mail-in voting, which are not true. Like the idea that it's ripe for fraud where there's no evidence of it. It, It's ripe
0: for fraud. If you're the person in control of the ballots when they receive them, mm -hmm. um, which is why you've seen um, because this is, this is the thing. In-person voting could be made safe, Mm -hmm. but states aren't going to spend the resources to make that happen. We already saw instead what states are doing. We saw this during the primaries when polling places in districts that had majority uh, non-white populations or majority uh, uh, poor populations, working class populations, had their polling places cut down absurdly with the excuse being the COVID pandemic, as if there is no way to square that circle. There are countries that have held elections during this pandemic, and they've been able to do it simply by having the basic respect for what an election means to actually try to make it safe. But in the U.S., where you've already got a lot of problems surrounding kind of the legitimacy of the, of the process of that and where we've put it to an unprecedented level of local political control, what you've seen instead is um, states taking advantage of this to make it harder to vote. Because yeah. I think in a lot of these places, you know that there is a groundswell of rage and of justified desire for a kind of comeuppance at the ballot box, and they can't even allow that to happen because then they might have to spend money bribing those
2: politicians or trying to win them over. We should know at uh, this time that there's some, that here in New York, our primary was sort of marred by this weird issue about postmarking ballots. Um, A lot of uh, ballots were sent out in envelopes that could be returned. You know, you just sign a thing, but they had to be postmarked by a certain date. And for whatever reason, the envelopes, are not typically postmarked. So a whole bunch wow. of ballots were rendered invalid in New York primaries as a result of that fact. You mentioned earlier that the market sort of rebounded upon the news that this has become a, a, a poor person's disease, as you described it. And I, and I think that really is, in large part, a factor in our government's lack of response. Um, there have been reports in recent days that The Trump administration's plans for a sort of federal testing program sort of fell by the wayside as they realized that the initial outbreak was happening hardest in um, what you would call blue states, particularly in New York City and in the Northeast. Um, And so a lot of people were allowed to die because Mm -hmm. they, you know, fit the demographic of somebody who might vote for Democrats, basically.
1: Yeah, and that's not surprising given everything we know about the current administration. And let's be honest, the way some fe- people feel about southern states—if you consider yourself a Democrat or blue—if um, they're not going to vote for people I like, then you know, screw them. Who cares? Which, it, at, at some level, like this is personally one of my frustrations with electoral politics is that. At a certain level, that's not a good way to operate. Just not just in terms of policymaking. That's not a good way to lead your life. Mm. Um, it just just reveling in in people dying because they live in the wrong location. What's wrong with you?
0: In the last couple days, actually, you've seen a number of prominent Democratic uh officials make some real noise about. Everything that's kind of going on, they're saying, you know, uh, I think the Republican Party, I think the president is, is actually trying to not accept the results of the election. It's actually trying to stay in power beyond, you know, constitutional limits and so on. And I think in part they are enjoying finally being able to play the role that they've always wanted to play, which is that my opponent is explicitly not playing fair and that's why we have to vote them out not because they have terrible policies or because we are um or because we're not willing to actually fight for a real contrasting vision of society just because our billionaires are slightly nicer than their billionaires they they're trying to make an actual an actually evil administration sound exactly the same as what they said about all the previous ones. And at some point, like people get tired of that shtick and they sort of made this bed, And now they sound like people who've been crying wolf this whole time when the previous administrations, you know, wouldn't go this far. And it, it's kind of, a, it, it's really annoying because in the primaries and in everything that Congress has been doing, we've seen that they're not willing to actually stand up for the people who are most affected by this pandemic. They're willing to occasionally submit an act or something like that, but the only thing they'll make noise about is their precious norms. And then yeah. it doesn't really work in the long term when that's all you care about, not the people that are affected by it. Like, this is... Always being done in in terms of uh, sort of what it makes us look like as a country, instead of what the actual effects on people are. The Democratic Party Platform Committee just voted down a series of proposals that have majority support from the American public, but we're supposed to believe that if you just you know pull the lever, the metaphorical lever, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. for blue in November, that. They're going to come to pass regardless because, you know, so many people have voted for them. And they think that we don't know that 2008 happened in this country. There was a Democratic supermajority in Congress. And instantly what we found out is just how many of those people could be bought. And that's going to happen again because there is no commitment to actually doing anything about any of the underlying issues that have made this country's specific outbreak
2: so much harder to deal with. I think there's been a lot of hand-wringing from congressional Democrats, you know, this idea that they can't do anything about the current moment because Republicans control the Senate, which is true to some extent, but the House is controlled by Democrats and in theory has an equal amount of power to the Senate. But there's a lot of standing around and... uh, I don't know, just hoping for the best from people who have shown that they aren't going to offer the best. Yeah. I, I, I don't really know what to make of the seeming lackadaisicalness that we've seen from Congress at a time when there are so many problems. Um, and there have been, you know, gestures towards making a real effort. I I think there has been a push from Democrats in recent days to preserve the $600 Uh, a week on unemployment benefits. Um, I I believe in their version of the relief bill, there is a a continued moratorium on evictions. Um, And they have talked about things like wanting um, to provide lawyers for those being evicted, which, which is a good thing. If, even if it is Mm -hmm. not quite up to the scale of this crisis, I guess really what we're seeing is, the Republican party's own ideology. It's um, it's commitment to not wanting um, to spend any money on the poor people basically is a roadblock that they are willing to die for. Like they must recognize that this will be bad for their electoral prospects in the fall if people do not receive the help they need. And yet you have senators like, uh, Ben Sass from Nebraska, Ben ass has discovered again his uh, commitment to fighting the deficit. You know, now that it yep. looks like Democrats might hold power for the next few years, he is uh, remembered that he came to office on, uh, you know, we should keep the public spending down. But so he's sort of uh, preparing for that fight in the middle of this crisis, which will require public spending the only thing I was going to
0: say is that they're making the right noises now because they're hoping that November will reward all of the noise making. Mm-hmm. The thing is that, okay, look, uh, this is probably the longest I've ever gone on punching out without mentioning what I do for a living, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost made it through the first segment. Um, but, um, as a teacher, Progress. one thing that you figure out very quickly is that you The behavior that you reward, and it's not always the behavior that you say you reward, is what you're going to end up getting more of. And to be frank, if you're a Democratic voter and you're listening to this and you're left of where the Democratic Party platform is, they need to hear from you. They need to hear from all of you because I know that you exist and I know that you're out there. The voting base of the Democratic Party is way left of its platform committee, is way left of the party infrastructure. Uh, or superstructure, we should really be saying. Ha-ha, Marxist. But the real truth of it is that the Democratic Party has been allowed to skate by on only making these noises when things get real bad, and then the moment that things get better, turning its back on its voters and saying, no, we're going to fob you off with you know, the, the healthcare exchanges, or we're going to do this, or we're going to do that, and we're going to point to all the structural factors why we can't do what you want us to do. But here's the thing. We know what a party that doesn't care about structural factors, that doesn't do anything via norms, that doesn't give a crap about uh, whatever structure it has, to, um, it has to disassemble to get its policy goals done, we know what that looks like. And they have been radically successful. And meanwhile, they've been able to paint the party of milquetoast liberals as being communists. They, if there was ever a time for just saying, screw the norms and full speed ahead, it is now. Because it doesn't matter what the Democrats do. They're going to get treated like they're the second coming of the Soviet Union for, uh, you know,
2: wanting to do some small amount of relief. They might as well do it. It's very sort of jarring to see the line from uh, the president and um, people in the media that Joe Biden is Antifa. He is uh, He's a rioter.
1: Oh, God, that would be so cool, though. That would roll. Yeah. Ooh, you had something... Yeah. So like with the, especially with the unemployment thing, the cry for months from conservative, especially business owners has been that the unemployment benefits because they were too generous have been the thing hurting the economy, not the shutdown, not the anything else. um, But the unemployment benefits, because for once they represent a living wage Mm-hmm. And that extra $600 means that people don't want to go back to their $7.25 an hour wage. And like to the point where even people I work with who, you know, it, I'm not surprised by that view, but it's still kind of jarring to hear it come out of the mouths of people you actually interact with, um, where they say, well, yeah, they, they uh, have so much money. They're just sitting around playing golf all day like the famous the people, thing
2: unemployed people do is uh, yeah
1: famous thing that people on minimum wage do is play golf for sure uh yeah it and it's the red baiting red baiting and, and everything else is so fundamental to how we operate in this country that on every level if you say you know here i'm going to give you money to just like survive people will even if they would benefit from it would be willing to turn it away because of their ideals or whatever
2: a weird sort of instilled pride in the idea yeah. of not accepting help when it is offered
1: yeah yeah exactly that it's it's bizarre it's irrational it's very disconcerting when that kind of mentality which cool if it works for yourself, but then they they insist on creating that policy or, or spreading it for other people who would want that money and assistance. Um, it's really frustrating. And well, go ahead.
2: We should say about this idea that uh, the $600 a week is keeping people from going back to work. One, not a lot of evidence to say that that's actually true. And two, it would be good if it was the last thing we need right now is people going into workplaces. Workplaces are not safe. That's where the pandemic happens indoors. Um, Exactly. And the idea that, you know, we need to spend in order to prevent the pandemic from spending is really anathema to a a party that gets its money from people who would very much not want the government to spend on the problems. We're going to wrap up this segment on that note. And when we come back, we'll talk about more of the problems, I guess.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. You're listening to Punching Out on W-A-Y-O-L-P Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
0: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm joined by Lou. Hi, guys. And Ryan. Hi. We spent the last segment talking about gesturing vaguely at everything uh, that is going on, all of which is bad. And um, we we sort of talked about the complete fecklessness of our uh, so-called leadership to do anything about any of these problems, except kind of a uh, fatal hole we all burn. But one thing that we started moving towards in the last segment was the fact that if you look at how other countries are dealing with this pandemic, listen, I'm not a dingus. I know that the upper class in pretty much every country is perfectly fine with committing genocide on enough of the working class to, you know, only have the bare minimum that they need to run everything. Okay, I don't care what country you live in. That is the case. That said, as much as I think the upper class in South Korea or the UK or Germany or Canada or wherever else would love to do this kind of stuff. The upper class here is kind of uniquely open about their disregard for the poor and the working class. And they're just kind of allowed to go off about it. And I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the culture that we live in that enables that to happen. And I'm not normally somebody who thinks that, you know, we, we can lay this at the feet of culture as as being the main driver of things, because I do think that is shaped by people with a conscious intent to do that. But we do live in a country that has raised individualism to the level of of a secular religion that lionizes personal choice above all other things and that, uh, as we have seen in the last few months, has asked people who are making the right choices, who are wearing the masks, who are staying indoor, uh, at home, pardon me, not indoors, who are doing their best to help contain the epidemic to please reach their hearts out to the people who are refusing to do all of these things, not being made to by their bosses, but who are refusing To abide by any of these conventions to understand them to not shame them to not scold them to be nice to them for refusing to do the things that we know would help contain this outbreak so that life could go back to quote unquote normal and that that's kind of a big uh to use a more a metaphor that we've seen used in politics a lot in this country that's kind of the fifth column that we're facing right now we have a number of people in this country who just don't feel like uh, doing anything to help and uh, a lot of us are spending a lot of energy on saying that they should be allowed
2: to do that I see the point you're making I, I guess where I would push back is I do think that a lot of that that culture you described stems directly from leadership and the messages people are told in the media and online especially from people who have you know a vested interest in not doing anything about the virus, who want to keep things running as smoothly and without interruption as possible. And so when you have this backlash towards masks or these rallies um, in like April and May to uh, quote unquote reopen the economy, we, we learned later that a lot of those had funding from people in high up positions within the government. Um, I think the DeVos family was in part responsible for those protests uh, spreading across the country, small though they were. And so people take their lessons from, they see that and they assume that is one part of a reasonable argument to some extent. They assume that, well, if these people are saying it, it has to be okay to some degree. And I think people take their cues from leadership and Leadership uh, gave a lot of the wrong cues during this crisis.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm sorry to say, I think you're both right. Um, because even though, you know, Ryan, your point about how leadership is driving the bus on that. I think that about so many different things. Um, in fact, I wrote my senior thesis on, on something similar to that in, in European politics, nerd alert, sorry. Um, but I, I do think that Noah is onto something that because we have this weird cultural obsession with individual choice, um, even when people get their cues from elites and everything, it's always the elites framing themselves as outsiders, as, um, disruptors, as, as, uh, people who aren't following the, the what is sensible and safe and sane. Um, Because they want to go against the grain, even at the same time, they're just following a different leader. Like it's it's a very bizarre situation we have. Um, Because yeah, like the 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 obsession we have with individual choice over everything else um, has definitely, I think, put us in a situation that um, other countries, except for maybe like Brazil. Um, aren't
2: really in. I, I would say that even that sort of obsession, as you describe, with individualism and individual choice, like there are historical reasons for why that happens in America. Um, mm-hmm. We had decades of this uh, Cold War opposition to communism and uh, yeah. collectivism in in general, really, and we had you know anti union propaganda and any number of factors to make a country of people who are you know more content to go alone who uh, as we I talked about in the first segment who view accepting help as a source of shame rather than yeah. you know something that people do um, so I guess my broader point is I don't know if I wouldn't necessarily come to the conclusion that like the American public is just, Miles stupider than every other public. Some of that is true, perhaps, but there's a lot of uh, misleading of the American public that has taken place.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. That is 100% true. Um, and I would. I mean, I would even say that the fact that we have to frame this in the way that we're framing it, that is this a question of is the public just inherently like this or have they been shaped like this? is kind of part of it to me because it creates this perception that, well, like, frankly, it it kind of feels like saying the public is just sheeple which we all know is the rallying cry of the person who wants to claim that telling them to put on a mask violates the uh it violates HIPAA because they're not supposed to know <laughs> about your health condition or whatever. Right. Um but no, I I agree that that is true. There is there has absolutely been a concerted effort to make people think the way that they think. Where I would push back is that as much as I understand that I think part of your role as a human being on Earth is kind of, um, I don't know, try to grow beyond the things that you're just told to act like. And that includes the things that that includes the capacity to reflect on what you aren't even being explicitly told to do. Um, And maybe this comes out of having an upbringing where literally everything that I was told about. Uh, the relationship of the U.S. to Puerto Rico or how Americans were and what American values were. Literally everything that I've ever been told about this has turned out to be 100% no BS wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that culture shock maybe accounts for some of this. But I get that it's a hard thing to realize, but if there was ever a time to move beyond that, we are living in extremely unprecedented times. And what we're really seeing more than anything is people being willing to hold on to the same truths about the world that are clearly not operative anymore. Um, and to do so, and this is the important part for me, to do so only when it proves an advantage to them, even if they're not billionaires, even if they're not you know, people who are deriving benefit from this crisis. And I guess that's what bothers me more than anything. The willingness to go, it, the, the desire to go it alone when it benefits you, but also to believe anything that furthers your self conception as you know the 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 real American, the rugged individual, and that to me is is part and parcel of both the message that people have pushed on the American public but also of the public's uh desire to just say, "Well, i'm not going to break out of that um, I guess where I'm really coming at this from. Is we talked a little bit about this on the show, but you've got, um and we talked about it in this very show. You've got people who are blaming uh, people on, on 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 expanded unemployment benefits and saying, "Well, those people are just out playing golf." Or you've got the people who refuse to wear masks having articles in the Atlantic asking people not to shame them. So you've got tons of people running interference for that on a level that is like we we're living through the crisis of our times right now and you still can't get people to realize that they have a responsibility to any other human beings and that to me is is the most defeating thing i can think of um and and you have to get beyond it and everything but in the moment it it does really take the wind out of my sails um, especially as somebody who's going to be asked to enforce, uh, a mask mandate, to ask people to socially distance, to tell people who have not taken this pandemic seriously from day one, that they have to follow the things that will make them safe. But I won't be given just like any, just like customer service representatives and so on. I won't be given any actual power to do that. I'll just be asked to do it uh, through force of personality which doesn't really work in this circumstance and that that really bothers
2: me on a visceral level. Uh Lou, I'm curious uh, since Noah mentioned that what sort of um do you have any role in like making sure that people at your workplace wear masks or
1: So, uh employees like we're all kind of on, on board with it because like we have to be there and right. we really since we don't have choice. Like we're we're all fine with it. But um in the same breath that we're told that we are – it is an expectation and we are required to go up to tell people, hey, can you put on your mask? That that would be great. Thanks. Um, I, in the same breath, they have to admit we can't do a thing about it. And if somebody says, oh, I have a medical exemption. I can't wear a mask. Um, at any point, we just have to go – Guess so that's awesome, and and like it's we get it all the time. So people will curse us out for making them wear a mask, and then people will curse us out for allowing people to not wear a mask. It's delightful. Um, it is the worst thing, uh, just because it, it's it's nonstop. It doesn't end. Um, we're six weeks into being open, and. It it it's just exhausting. <laughs> it sucks so much, guys. It really sucks. Uh, yeah, it it's awful.
2: Uh, Noah, you mentioned um, this idea of people being told not to shame others for you know not following the rules and what have you, and I think to some extent that might stem from sort of a a long term sort of apathy Americans have had about politics um and in the idea that for a while uh, there have been a lot of people who haven't seen the ways in which politics impacts their lives directly because for a while we've had a democratic and republican parties that have operated within a not too dissimilar framework um you know there have been obviously pet issues that each party has that are, there are real differences on and which do matter but for a lot of people they look at You know, the presidential election, and they don't see much difference um, in terms of their lives, you know, in terms of being personally impacted, regardless of who wins. Um, And so, one side effect of that is the idea of treating politics as though it matters is sort of laughed at by a lot of people. And if you're going to laugh at that idea, then you're certainly going to reject the idea that somebody should be you know, held accountable or protested or yelled at on the basis of their political beliefs, you know, because it just hasn't seemed like those political beliefs could be harmful at all. But here in the last few years, as beliefs have maybe grown a bit wider in terms of, you know, what is in the mainstream and how noxious they can be, we have to realize that there are political beliefs that are harmful and must be called out and the mask debate is maybe a small like microcosm of that broader discussion in our politics about what is acceptable behavior what is um how harmful can your beliefs be before it's okay to call you out on that fact
0: that that's the thing that it and this is somewhat independent of ideology but um there is a general reluctance among in in american culture and even sometimes this is positive there is a general reluctance to call other people out for doing something wrong unless you already don't like that type of person so it's very easy Um, so it's very easy to say to somebody who's being kind of a scold or whatever, uh, to, to just call them a hall monitor and dismiss them as, you know, authoritarian or whatever. But the thing is pretty much everybody has certain things that they want to be that way about. And right now we have a, a thing that objectively you actually do need to control people's behavior about. And it sucks. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there aren't downsides to it. I'm not saying that it's great to be you know, sitting in your house all day and, and not leaving it. I'm not saying that having your, your living environment circumscribed to within you know uh, a few miles of your house is great or not being able to travel. There are things that we lost for sure. But the thing is, there was a way to regain access to those things and we failed to follow it. Because people wanted to throw fits about being asked to take a few simple steps, not even because the moment they became to ensure other people's safety, they decided, well, that's not for me anymore. I'm only looking out for number one. Mm -hmm. And you see this at every level. You see it in the professional sports world where right now the uh, the NBA uh, said from the get-go, we're going to put you in one place, we're going to have you all tested, we're going to do all of these things and it's kind of working out
2: meanwhile you look okay. at what hmm? just as another example because I'm, I feel an obligation to bring up Major League Soccer when I can, there you um, go. Um, <laughs> they also had uh, a sort of bubble in Disney World and Orlando that aside from the fact that two teams had to leave the tournament um, has gone okay. Uh, they've gone a, about a week now without having any sort of positive tests within the bubble, which I guess is a best-case scenario for how that sort of thing can go.
0: Well, and, and those teams had to leave because they didn't take the proper steps before yeah. going to the bubble. And that brings me naturally to discussing baseball, where <laughs> you've had several teams uh, who are not only testing positive and therefore having games postponed and so on, But we're also gathering evidence that, you know, players on those teams refuse to abide by safety protocols. Uh And these are people who are playing, you know, I will never know what it's like to be a professional sports player. Uh, They have a very high stress, high pressure job. But if you wouldn't listen to... Uh, You know, these are guys who, if their trainer tells them, you have to do this very specific thing in order to prepare your body for the rigors of doing your job so you don't get injured and so you're as good as this sport as possible. Most of the time they listen, but you told them to stop spitting and stop high-fiving and stop touching each other all the time and wear a mask when you're out on the field and so on. And all of that they refuse to do. And now we have this problem. And part of that, to be fair, is on, again, as you said, Ryan, leadership. Major League Baseball decided not to do a bubble. They decided not to try and contain things to a number of small sites, partly because when they did, they somehow managed to select the states that were undergoing hotspots. spots. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, there was a certain responsibility on the players' part to avoid doing the things that would exacerbate the problem, and they manifestly did not meet that responsibility and it kind of becomes a microcosm for what's going on everywhere else because their fellow, their teammates, the people that you know are hurt by this, in many cases, were doing everything they were supposed to, and now they're mad because these three guys didn't. And now, you know, we can't play. We're not quarter of the wanna... team has coronavirus. Yeah. yeah, and now even if even if we're getting tested every day, we might not be able to play, and so. On. You know, this is a very specific example, and sports has its own environment and everything. But, like, damned if that doesn't tell you what we're dealing with here. We have a, um, even when it's people who have every reason to want to avoid these problems, even when it's people who make a living by being healthy, <laughs> they couldn't hold to just the most, some of them, to be fair. Couldn't even hold to some of the most basic protocols with that. And to me, on some level, what hope do the rest of us have when we're just working stiffs who, you know, uh, we can talk about the short careers of athletes and so on. But like none of us talking on this podcast right now is going to make even 500K a year, let alone several million. Mm-hmm. So what are we supposed to do when we get sent into I mean, Ryan, you you know about this more than either of the rest of us yeah. do. And uh, Lou, so do you. I'm about to get sent into the trenches and in direct contact, and I've got bosses who sit in their offices all day and can do everything via Zoom and think, well, you know, it's not really such a big problem, uh, if my employees uh come into contact routinely with teenagers because at first it was that they don't spread the virus, then once that got uh, once that turned out to be untrue, it was that they won't get it as severely, which I don't know how that's supposed to help me. Um, and then it was that uh, it doesn't matter. They, they will follow these rules. Teenagers will follow the rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so We have I, I think it's, it's fair to say that we have a widespread issue
2: here. I would just say from my experience, you uh, I work at a nursing home as some of our listeners will be familiar with, and they've recently opened up uh, to visitors, which for the first time, and there are you know, some strict guidelines about how this operates. You can only have, I think it's two visitors at a time. All these meetings take place outdoors. You're supposed to keep masks on at all times, and there's supposed to be an employee there to ins- to watch over and make sure that happens, though from what I've seen, that hasn't always been the case. It's, we've been very lucky not to have an outbreak among the residents, which uh, sadly, across New York, there have been dozens of nursing home where they've just been devastated by this virus. But like, even adults aren't following the rules, is what I'm saying. Like, you can talk about teenagers and their unwillingness to follow the rules, but it's not just teenagers. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not.
1: In fact, just anecdotally, um, a lot of people, their objection is, oh, I can't get my, my two-year-old to wear a mask. It's not it. The two-year-olds are not the problem. It's 100% yeah. the adults all the time.
0: No, that is also absolutely true. But it's, it's one thing to – how do I put this? <sighs> yes, the problem is the adults. I have even, I am going to have even less ability to deal with the adult side of the problem than I will with the adolescent side of the problem. Right. Um, And you want to talk about a population of people that will follow those rules that bring them personal advantage and will disregard the ones that they don't. Adolescents are definitely squarely in that circle. But no, I do not, I don't blame them for what's about to happen. I blame squarely my bosses who are going to do this knowing that symptoms are going to spread and that people are going to get
2: sick and they just don't care. And there has been a message in recent uh, weeks from like Republican leadership and those pushing for schools to reopen that we have to be willing to accept, you know, outbreaks among students, um, you know, when they aren't just outright denying the possibility that students can get sick from this virus, that children can spread it. Um, And I think that sort of acceptance is something that we have to push back against. Like the idea that there's an acceptable death toll from this, that we're just going to have to go along and however many people die, you know, if they die, they die. I think it's the responsibility of people not in power to do what they can to not accept those terms.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's like, (sighs) I did see a thing on the internet a few weeks ago of somebody trying to explain the left-wing rationale to right-wingers. And they said, the thing you have to understand about left-wingers is they will do anything to save one life, even if it means blowing up the Statue of Liberty to save one person. And I will, I agree. That's not a bad way to live, frankly. You heard it here first.
2: Lou wants to blow up the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) Um, We can take a break before we get into more trouble. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll be back for a brief while after this break to wrap up the show and talk about maybe some positives. I don't know if we can get there, but we'll try.
1: You're listening to Punching Out on WEO 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Now back to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I am Lou, joined still by Noah. Hi y'all. And Ryan. Hello. So, in this last segment, we're going to try to be positive since we're such rays of sunshine right now. Hmm. Um, but, it, Noah, Ryan, do you have any thoughts on how we can get ourselves out of this mess? Anything?
0: Yes, Lou. Several.
1: <laughs> several. Okay, good.
2: Um, I, I guess to start off, I think the one thing that is that we can maybe take hope from is the fact that. We have sort of a ready-made example, in fact, dozens of ready-made examples of how to contain the coronavirus, of how to prevent it from spreading further and killing thousands of people a day. And it's basically every other developed country. And so if like our politicians are willing to take the steps those countries have made um, and to provide further guidance to people because obviously there are going to be people who, even if the Republican party says, you know, don't go to work, you know, stay at home. There are going to be people who aren't willing to listen to that, but we can take, we can follow their lead and hopefully have results if not um, equal to theirs. You know, it's obviously too late for that to be the case. We can try to, uh, bring down the curve the way they did.
0: Yeah. And to break a little bit from the the sort of heavy responsibility I was putting on individuals on in the last segment, what I would say is that part of the reason that people are very quick to reach for the conspiracy theory and and just sort of say, well, I'm not going to do any of these things because I don't trust these forecasts is that when it seems pretty clear that the people in power are up to no good and that they don't care about you, it is very easy to disregard whatever they tell you. So part of this has to be not just guidance in terms of, you know, make sure that you follow these rules and whatnot, but also, you know, reward that. So as Ryan said, pretty much every other developed country figured out a way to pay people to stay the hell home. That's mm-hmm. important. I mean, we started doing that, and then essentially said, "Let's pock market so that it's just useful enough to sort of get us over the hump, but not useful enough to actually mm-hmm. convince people that you know not having to go in for your minimum yeah. wage job every day might be a, a good thing."
2: Yeah, we we did sing the uh, praises of six hundred dollar a week unemployment benefits, but it should be noted that unemployment um, is a system run by states and can wildly vary depending Mm -hmm. on what state you're in and just like administratively how that is handled. And there are people who have absolutely fallen through the cracks of what has been, you know, a pretty robust safety net for this pandemic. And so the other models that have been put forth by other countries, at least I haven't seen stories of, you know, Millions being worried about their ability to pay rent this month, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be that sense that those countries are on the brink of collapse the way the USA currently is. Yeah. And
0: you're going to need – and that actually brings me to an important thing that they haven't really talked about except in the context of we're not going to fund schools if they don't reopen. Uh, You need funding to state and local governments so that they can administer things like unemployment, things like social safety nets, things like public health. You're going to need funding for continued unemployment benefits as well as pay people to keep uh, their employees on the payroll at full pay you're going to need to spend some money so that people have an incentive to actually do the kind of stuff that might contain the outbreak. Mm -hmm. Because there are things that, you know, you just don't care about if you don't know where your food is coming from and where the roof over your head is going to come from and all that sort of thing. Coronavirus, for all of the real damage that it, it, all of the real havoc that it has wrought, is very much an abstract danger because it's not you know, some big monster that you see uh, shambling down the avenue. So you need to take steps to put people in a frame of mind where they can deal with that sort of thing on a level that is, that is fair to them. And the way you do that in this case is by taking care of their needs.
2: Yeah. You, you talk about state aid being an important part of this. And just to give A concrete example, uh, in the last week or so, Andrew Cuomo has talked about, you know, if they don't get, if the state of New York, that is, doesn't get uh, federal funding the way they're expecting to make up for the shortfalls in tax revenue that will stem from the economy uh, being shut down and all of that. You know, New York is looking at uh, raising fares on the subway and on the throughway um, in order to help cover that budget shortfall, because as he puts it, the money has to come from somewhere. The idea that it might come from those at the top, those that have made a lot of money during this crisis doesn't seem to have entered his head. But, um, you know, the alternative to robust uh, state funding is going to be austerity that will not help uh, workers in any real way and will only make this crisis worse.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, the, the ultimate answer to the question, as you guys have pointed out, is have social services of any variety, basically, child care, unemployment, health care, uh, job guarantee, anything would help. And it, it's honestly just a matter of of politicians just saying, we're going to do this and and do it. That's it. That's really very simple in terms of like changes that we could make um, compared to other things we've talked about, talked about, like... Supreme Court reform or uh, modifying our entire culture to be more worker friendly. This is nothing. And it could be very, very easily overcome. Uh, Not to get us in more trouble, but I'm just saying that something needs to be done. Because they're about to have millions of people who are homeless and starving.
2: I know this is the positive segment, but perhaps it doesn't inspire much hope that the priority from Senate Republicans has been a liability protections for companies that open back up amidst this pandemic. Um, So as much as we may talk about uh, how simple it is to solve this problem, there does have to be people in power with the will to actually solve it. And unfortunately on this, uh, radio show in rochester new york we don't have the power to change that uh today and we're running up against our time limit so for this week i'm ryan and i'm lou i'm noah this is punching out
0: you've been listening to punching out